Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Jimmy Jameson. He's telling us about having his absolute worst childhood fear come true. And then we talk about the frustration of bystanders, humor as a defense mechanism, the risks of negative manifestation, and the importance of surrounding yourself with doers. So first, let's listen to Jimmy's story recorded live at 21 Soho. So who here uh, believes that they are a prophet? Anyone? No? Okay. Um, I was expecting someone to say it, but no. Um, so I thought I was, uh, when I was about 12, I thought that I was going to get mugged. And uh, it was constantly this anxiety, I'm going to get mugged, I'm going to get mugged. And I was a very lively child. I was very, I wanted to be an actor, I was liked having friends, I was very sociable. So I thought, well, I better avoid this. So I started to gradually withdraw away from going out, things like that. And this was noticed by my parents. So at age 14, my mother stepped in and asked me to do her a favor. And that is to go to this girl called Julie's birthday party, which was ice skating in Queensway up in London. Um, but at this point, I was... I was really avoiding things. And mum was like, please, as a favour to me. It was a pretty big favour, to be honest with you, because I hadn't seen or spoken to Julie for four years. I knew her as a friend in junior school. Mum was like, you liked her? You got on with her? And so sleepless nights, I was like, I'm going to get mugged. I said to mum, I'm going to get mugged. I know I'm going to get mugged. And she's like, go have fun. See what it's like. See that you won't get mugged. You'll have a good time. So met Julie and her friends at the bus stop. I was like, please, I hope I'm not the only boy. There was boys there. I was like, thank God. And then one of them had a row with uh, Julie's sister. So they left. And then on the train, I ran out of conversation with Julie. Off we went ice skating. They flung themselves around the place. I just meandered. Quiet day. I was like, okay, this is fine. So afterwards, I was like, brilliant. All done. As we come out of the ice rink center, we go onto the street. Julie and her friends, kind of, I was just drifting behind them. This arm came around my shoulder. I looked around, and there was a little wolf smiling at me. And he's like, why are you ignoring me? I was like, what? Sorry? Why are you ignoring me? I was like, it's really confused. And then these other wolves, bigger ones, started circling me, all smiling and grinning. And Julie and her friends, they didn't, they didn't really know me, so they're like, oh, he's got friends. They wandered on. And then this arm around my shoulder became a grip around my neck and they started moving me towards I saw this alleyway and uh, the wolf started snarling and shouting and swearing at me and luckily my dad supports Watford Football Club so I've heard these words before but the next two words were quite terrifying because the bigger wolves ordered the little one to stab me they're like stab him, go on stab him and I knew if I went to that alley that I wouldn't come out of it alive. And they threw me against a Chinese restaurant window. So I banged on the window, and there was a couple centimeters away from me eating, and they looked at me, and I carried on eating. <laughs> so it's lovely. And then Julie and her friends started screaming in the streets, and they grabbed hold of one guy, and he threw her off. And at that point, I realized I was completely and utterly alone. No one was going to help me. 
no adults, as you always told, ask an adult, these girls were screaming in the street. It was a crowded street. No one was helping, and uh, I was facing death. These guys, were, they wanted me stabbed. And I don't know what I said, but I said something funny. It was like my brain just kicked in something. So I said something funny to the little wolf. He went, <laughs> he broke him, and he went, oh, just give me your money. So I gave him my wallet, and that was it, done. Been mugged. All done. And then the girls were like, we need to call the police. I said, like, oh, I really don't call the police. They said, no, we do need to call them. So they called the police. The littlest girl was like, they stole his purse. They stole his purse. His purse has been stolen. I was like, no, it's not a purse. It's really not a purse. It's a wallet. They stole my wallet. They stole my wallet. So the police were like, well, can you describe this wallet? And I proceeded to describe my sister's wallet that she had lent me for this trip. So I was like, oh, yeah. So it's purple, green, yellow, turquoise, and hot pink. And it has a smiling elephant on the front. This is a body shop wallet. And I saw them look at each other, and I was like, this is worse than the mugging, to be quite honest with you. Uh, the boys were caught. I know this because when I was taken to the police station, I was sat opposite them and then left as they all sat there just grinning at me. And they, I always say, they emasculated me. And when I say that, it doesn't mean they feminized me. It's got nothing to do with that. It means they made me nothing, absolutely nothing. And then my life began from that moment on because I had had a message from God that I had ignored really from the divine. He, he told me I was in trouble and I ignored it. So then this became a split between the boy that wanted to be an actor and want to go and have fun and everything. And the boy that needed to stay in his room or he would die. If I leave my room, I would die. And that's how, how I approach my life. If I think it's bad, if I think it, that will happen, it will happen. And I had to hide it from my mum and my dad because, frankly, I was worried my mum was going to ask me to do another favour. Um, so I had to kind of try and hide it. And I realised when someone falls over, when they fall in life, they don't fall quickly. They fall really, really, really slowly. So no one notices and they don't notice either. And I didn't know it was happening and it snowballed very slowly. So within a year, going out was a complete ordeal. There's many stories, but I'm going to give you one. Friday night... Everyone wanted to go out as a teenager. All my friends wanted to go out to an under-18s club. And uh, everyone was like, yeah, let's go. So I was like, oh. I had to have two sleepless nights. When I left the house, I literally would look at the house for the last time. I look at my parents for the last time and I'm like, I'm going to die. And then I'd get into the car of my, one of my mate's cars. And I remember one of them, uh, he put on Prodigy, the fire starter. That was the new song out. So I don't recommend that when you're having a panic attack in the book. <laughs> In the back of a car, in the dark, I used to be silent as we were hurtling down the motorway, as I thought, towards my death. It turned out that I was only going to Hemel Hempstead, but <laughs> it was very scary. And when I got to the club, this new personality arrived. I was this person that went to the bar, so I was a pushover, but I knew that would take time. Um, I'd go to the toilets because I couldn't hold my drink. It's because I could lock myself in the cubicle. I'd become this asexual shoulder to cry on because I knew that we'd go to a quiet corner while someone left me alone. Uh, I had harsh parents, didn't really, but I said, oh, I need to go because they're on to me. And I started this life where I avoided everything and I attracted bad people because they didn't care about me. And that was really nice because they didn't ask what was wrong with me. And it felt very safe to be around people that could spike my drinks, steal my money, but at least they won't ask me if I was okay. Um, very safe. 
And that became a life of avoiding everything. I eventually became an actor, but I didn't want to bother my agent because if he sees me, he, he might sack me. And so I didn't bother him. Then one time I was chatting to one of my friends and he said, oh, my friend used to be an agent. He doesn't do it anymore. Turns out it was my agent. And <laughs> I thought, oh, he's been quiet. So <laughs> that's how I lost my agent. Um, <laughs> just didn't bother him. So eventually my mum stepped in once again and asked me to do her a favour. And that was to get therapy. And that was during lockdown because I couldn't hide anymore. And I then realized that when you're running from where you're meant to be, you run to the dark, you run and you build a life there. And when fear is in control, that's where you go. And when you build this life, you start having debts, you have children, you have houses, you have different things, jobs, and you can't leave it. And you wonder why you're unhappy and you wonder why you're unfulfilled. And I think many people have done this. I realized the mugging wasn't the story. I was never a prophet. Your future is always unwritten. But when fear is in control, this is what happens. And so it wasn't about the mugging. It's about avoiding something. And I'll finish on this because I always think that a sure failure is much safer than an unsure success. So thank you. Jimmy, welcome to Hello. the podcast. Hello. <laughs> it's great to see you again. It's very nice to see you. How does it sound to you hearing that story back after such a long time? It's been a couple of years almost. Yeah, that was quite weird, actually. I felt quite uncomfortable through one bit of it. A specific episode you were recounting or? The after effects. Mm. Uh, but the mugging, it was weird. I can picture it clear as day. Sure. Because as I was sitting here listening with you, I was wondering, this could be re-upsetting living through it again. Yeah, I could feel the, the, the feelings again, which is strange, because if I was talking to you about it now, I'd be fine. But when I could hear it, I can, I can see them still to this right. day. Yeah, so frightening. Yeah. There's so much to dig into, but I wanted to start by asking, how was the process of deciding what to tell and how to tell it for you? When I decided to tell that story, I actually wanted to talk about my nan's funeral, because that's funnier. Mm. And I like to go towards the funny. I feel quite uncomfortable with the serious. And that was a serious story. And I don't tell it to many people because actually it's quite uncomfortable. It actually is me. And so I knew that kind of kind of made me. So to go back to it, I was always leaning towards what made me laugh from it. I didn't really like the uncomfortable, the actual reality of it. We see that fun. sometimes with funny people like yeah. you who have traumatic things happen and the retelling is often dialing up the humor. Yeah. The wallet and, you yeah. know, various moments yeah. that were like are genuinely funny. But there's real trauma here of, yeah. the, of going into something and being afraid and then having your worst fears realized. I wanted to ask you, were you anxious about a lot of things, including being mugged? Or was it really centered on possibly being mugged? Do you remember? I think that like a lot of kids, I was probably processing going from junior school to secondary school. I'd had a lot of problems with teachers. One of them was really abusive to me, like mm. physically, oh, um, sorry. when I was about six or seven. And it was something that I hid from my parents. Mm. I actually don't, I have no, I actually have zero memory of it. It was another child was having nightmares about what was happening to me and weren't going to school. But basically uh, the lady in question, I think was having problems, the teacher, and she got a medicine ball. And I was the smallest boy in the year. I was the smallest child in the school. And she apparently bounced it off my head. No. I uh, was maybe standing in the room while she bounced it off my head. No. I don't, I don't remember it. Oh, and, Jimmy. Yeah, and I do remember her telling everyone how stupid I was because I couldn't cut properly 
but she had made me use the right-handed scissors for... I was left-handed and I was very arty. So I'd have to use the right-handed scissors, which would hurt my hand. But I wasn't telling my mum and my dad. I don't know why. I don't have a real memory. But as soon as they found out, it was, you know, nuclear warheads, you know, straight up to the school. But but she'd gone. Nowadays, the school would probably be shut, I imagine. But from then on, I had the slightest problem with a teacher. And my mum and dad were up there. Like, you know, they're very protective. They're great mum and dad. But I think by the time I got to secondary school, actually looking back at it, the trauma was starting because I had a huge problem with someone that you trust in authority which is the teachers they're the ones that are safe so going into secondary school which is scarier the teachers were scary but then the kids are scary right you don't know them and it's a huge school our, our school was so big it was on two sides of the road there was a subway underneath oh wow so you're kind of lost amongst the rabble and i think that's where it starts where i, I felt very unsafe at school but didn't quite know what was going on and i think the mugging was just It's just a coincidence. Now I look back, it was just a coincidence. But unfortunately, it's one of those ones, like a Greek tragedy. You start laying the the groundwork towards this happening. You know, it might never have happened. It just was one of those bad luck. And speaking of the mugging, there's two things about it that I really wanted to check in with you about. You escaped this situation (laughs) because you made the little one laugh. Yeah. And I'm wondering, has that reflex always been present is that yeah a natural defense mechanism for you my mom and dad again it goes back to mom and dad very poor growing up i had no idea that we were i thought we were very rich but we weren't we didn't have much money but there was a lot of stress for them they're constantly you know a lot of hard they're working really hard and um one of the things i could make them laugh mm. and we all have the same sense of humor me and my sister i got an older sister and i would entertain them i'd grab some of my sister's glasses and i'd get her shorts and pull them up here and then slick my hair down and walk in and I'd come up with this sort of character called Billy wander in the room and call myself Billy to my dad make them laugh go, hello I'm Billy <laughs> and uh, so there was this way of just kind of making them laugh and also my nan we were very in tune with each other and she was very much all about the laughter everything's the laughter and she was a very um, dazzling woman she was a, a cross between Betty White and Barbara Windsor she was Cockney. She and you know had the Blitz, and she got into um, the army. She faked my grandma's signature, so she was only fifteen. And she, they're horrible stories, you know. The the Clerkenwell, where she come from, Exmouth Market, which is now lovely. They were like yeah. the slums and bombed, bombed to hell, and you know people dying. But my nan made it sound the most funniest, <laughs> best thing ever. And so she had a way of you know spinning this funny story from horror. Wow. And I think that's kind of laid the groundwork for when I got to the mugging is I look back on that and I try and find the humour, the lighter moments. And I think also when I was completely and utterly in danger, which is really that moment, it was that knocking on the Chinese shop window, seeing the girls, that was a proper one, seeing them screaming in the street and seeing this guy ignore them. It was a very much opens your eyes, and which I don't think you need when you're young, to the fact that adults are just the same as you. Mm -hmm. They're all just, they're just a bigger version. They're all terrified. No one wants to mess, even with kids. And the worst thing is they're pretending that they're not seeing it. Oh, it's, it was the most, it was one of the most horrifying parts of that story. One of the reasons I love when these stories get told is it's planting a seed in all of our minds to remember, to pay attention. And if you can't help directly, find help. It actually sums up why everything kind of goes wrong ever, because Mm. we, no one really wants to deal with the bad stuff, the real bad stuff. And the best way to do it is pretend it's not happening. You know, they even say that about the environment. 
you know, it'll be fine. Yeah. Everything's going to be fine. So it's just that that man probably justified it himself is they're just mucking around. And realising that, oh, my God, you know, this has set me up for the rest of my life. It's like, oh, you know, we're all just on our own. <laughs> oh, that's a terrible lesson to learn at such a young age. Yeah. And to then be so skillful at staying on your own, like the mechanisms you used to keep other people from knowing what was really happening for you, like having this semblance of friends, but they were actually not good people. You, yeah, I would say if you go to the dark, you'll find the people that live in the dark. And the trouble with the people that live in the dark is they don't like the bright light. So anytime you shine, you'll hurt their eyes and they'll make sure you stay in the dark with them. And the trouble is, is they've all run to it. They're exactly like you are. So you end up doing it to them. They end up doing it to you and you will stay there together. And uh, I did attract a lot of people that were now, I look back, were very lost in their lives. Mm. I don't really speak to any of them anymore, but I was very handy to have around, you know, and we kept each other down. And and that's the worst thing is never in big dramatic ways. It's far more easier if you're with someone that, say, has a huge problem with drugs, massive problem, and quite openly are doing things that you would notice as bad. They're easy to deal with because you're like, oh, you are dark, so I'm going to protect myself. The worst ones are the ones that they've got jobs, they, they've got money, they're doing this, but they're just in the dark. You can have the loveliest things in the world, I think, sometimes, and still be living in the dark and find a way of just keeping people down. It's a real subtle thing. It's such a it's huge transition. I think it happens for people at different ages. Yeah. For me, it was, I think, in my 30s, I was like, I need to let go of some so, friendships. Yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely a hard thing to do. Yeah, it really is. And the friends I've got now in my life, I love my friends, you know, I've, I've real, and we get excited for each other, you know? So how did you get from the dark to the light? Well, I think again, as you slowly go down, you also can slowly go back up. I think maturity really helps. And sometimes circumstances. So I was in a dead end job. I was in a, sh- I was in HMV, basically I was in HMV collapse. So the shop, a chain collapsed and I put on Facebook, oh, going to the job centre and someone put their hiring in the theatres. And again, my mum and my dad said, you always should work in the, th- you should work in front of house in theatres because this one I was acting, but not very well. And getting a job front of house in theatres really helped because you'd still meet a lot of people that are in the dark, but you also meet a lot of positive people that, because I find in the theatre world, in the acting world, the creative world, there's a lot of people that have to be positive to get somewhere. And when you meet them, they can have quite a good effect on you. And that's the start of me going back up because I started meeting people who were doers Mm. and creative people. So I was very lucky. I think I was actually very, very lucky to kind of get out of the rut that I was in. But I'd say my rut lasted to I was about 31. And I also, my mate always said that I actually formed a personality of being a loser as a joke. So it's like, I would never get the audition. He said, but you actually end up becoming this jokey persona. I became the persona. How'd you turn that around? Because you're pretty active in acting and performing yeah. and creative work now. Well, I was also, again, there's a little bit of luck. I was working in the theatre and my friend, Shell, Michelle, she says, I want you to be in my play. And it was, the show was serious. So I was like, I do not want to be in the show. And she forced me to be in the show. And that started me going, oh, I can still do this. I just had to go through a bit of that pain of standing up and doing this serious scene. I couldn't rely on being funny. And Michelle was very much a doer. You know, everything she did, she did, you know, go for that. And that helped. And then uh, one of my best friends, Amy, who's in a TV show called Learn of Duty, was a doer, a real doer. She didn't, and she's hustled for her work. Everything she did, she worked really hard. And she said to me, you need to do improv. 
And it's this slow sort of thing. So that's quite a few years ago now, I think about five years ago. So then the, the improv also then helped. And at the same time, then we had my show Game Night came along. My other mate said, I want you in the show. And so a bit of luck. But yeah. there's luck. And then there's this theme of important people that you chose to listen to, even yeah. if you did it begrudgingly. It sounds like you had a few key people that were encouraging you. Yeah, I did, actually. And that's, again, I think it's the people you surround yourself. Because I was in a little bit more of a positive place. So I wouldn't have met those people before. And those people are doers. It's meeting doers. And that's I think that really helped. And having people like Amy, who is a, a friend that was whispering in my ear, you can really do it. You are oh, good. Yeah. yeah. And then you, Jimmy, chose to believe her at least a little, enough to take the next step. Yeah. So a couple of things in there. One is thinking about the importance of how the rest of the world views you and how mm. much weight their view carries. Like that's a big thing we as humans take into daily life. Yeah. Is just the need for other people's, I don't want to say approval, but we weight their judgment quite a lot. And the other thing you mentioned that I think is such an important point is surrounding yourself with doers. Like people who take action. Because this idea that you don't always know exactly how to get where you're going, if this vague direction you're headed towards, but can you take one right step? Can you take one step that moves you toward the next step, toward the next? Because sometimes you don't have a plan. No, I think, uh, again, actually, my mum and dad are doers. Like Mm -hmm. my dad's, and my mum and dad, you know, that his business failed one after the other, after the other. You know, never, ever do they ever just admit defeat, ever. And, uh, and my sister is as well. So I'm a family of people that get knocked down and get back up again constantly. <laughs> like I think with my dad, uh, his friends, they used to do bets on what shirt he'd wear. He only had two. And they'd, uh, <laughs> they'd laugh at us leaving parties because it would not just be my mum, my dad. They couldn't afford a babysitter. So it'd be my sister, me, and then the dogs. They'd bring the dogs, the two dogs, and we'd be in a mini that barely would work. So would and they'd all laugh. But funny enough, when my dad started becoming successful and my mum, those friends turned against them. Really? They liked them being not doing stuff. And my dad's had to, that's a lesson my dad's had to learn quite a few times is those good friends of his all turn against him every single time. So I think surround yourself with doers and those people, it's it's not, again, it's not easy because you find the people that you really love will actually not enjoy you breaking that mold. People resist change in the other people in their world, I think. And it's interesting to notice if your friendship with someone is rooted in some sort of relative power balance or relative success versus their own independent sense of themselves and your independent sense of yourself. Yeah. Because... If your if your friendship is rooted in someone else feeling better than you, yeah. that's a not a very good, not a winning proposition. No, and I that was another thing actually. I had I had a little bit of an epiphany when I was at drama school, and um, they were very much set up against each other. And I had a bit an epiphany one day with one of my mates where I used to be really happy when he got bad notes because my acting teachers did not like me. They tried to chuck me out quite a few times, actually. They didn't think I was a good actor until the last month, and then they told me I was really good. But I realised I could never be friends with him if I was only happy when he was down. Mm -hmm. And it was a real... That's when my friendships changed, actually. That's when they started to change, because I was like, oh, I, I can't... A lot of my friendships were like that, actually. I was very happy when that person was down, and they were very unhappy when I was up. That issue of comparison, there's a saying that comparison is the root of all suffering. I'm not sure if there's like a truer sentence about this topic. Yeah. Because comparing yourself to 
anyone makes almost no sense. That's the other one. I, I like my therapist says this to me as well. Like, don't <laughs> compare because you can't. You'll never. You never know what's going on. You can't. Lives. You're yeah. different people with mm. different contexts, circumstances, resources, values. Yeah. There's so much that's different about any given person. To then compare yourself to them as though you had the same opportunities or the same connections or the same skills. It's just, it's futile. It's a waste of time. Yeah. And people do it all the time. People spend so much time in comparison versus figuring out a way to let each other be your individual optimal, your individual happiest, your individual most productive. One of the things actually I realized actually to pull myself out of this dark is you find the positives I was I I didn't have many I had about me. I was very much put myself put myself down. But one of the ones I used to always say I had was tenacity. Mm-hmm. So you just just keep going at it. And what, and that's what I used to rely on as like well, I do a lot there's a lot of things I don't do. You know, there's lots of things I avoid, but I never quit. You know, if I want to get somewhere I will not quit. It sounds um, like you got that a bit from your parents, from your yeah. dad maybe? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they both of them would they will not stop. Or at least that was modeled for you pretty yeah. clearly. Yeah. And so that's one thing where on the negative side, sometimes I don't quit friends. I don't quit a job that I should get out of. But on the positive side, I've never turned around and gone, well, I can't be an actor anymore. I've gone down a bit, but I'm always like, no, 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 no. Yeah. I'm meant to do this. I'm meant to do drawings. I'm meant to do art. I'm meant to do all this. So I'm, and that kind of pulled me a little bit through this sort of mud yeah. that I'd got myself in. So that ability to look at things from so many different sides is a real gift. That's like a real positive attribute in a person, at least as a recipe for happiness. Have you always been that way or is this something you came to a little bit later? I think I was like this and it was then knocked out of me Mm. uh, by life. So like the mugging, I don't think my mugging, as I said it in there, it's not the story because everyone will have something that will happen in their life that will be an unhappy event that will then push them towards this life that they build away from what they're meant to be doing. I, that I, I always get told that, you know, life will do the work of putting you down. Your job is to make sure you're happy. And people feel guilty about being happy. It's like, no, don't worry, because something will happen. <laughs> don't worry. Life yeah. will take care. Life, life, will, life will keep you in check. <laughs> yeah, life will keep you in check. So your job is just to be happy in life and to do stuff that makes you happy as long as you're not hurting anyone else, you know, and it makes you feel positive. That's everyone's got that. And I had that. It's the trouble is someone will have something and then they go running and they build this life. And it's, so, as I say, it's so subtle and it's so mundane. This is the trouble as well. It's not dramatic. Right. Had I gone and shaved my head and locked myself in my room and painted it all black, mum and dad would have a clue. They would right. sort that out. That would be that would be sorted. It wasn't that. I create a persona, and I think people create their own personas of building this life that's away from what they're meant to be doing. So their unhappiness is so subtle that it won't hit them till they're 50. And they'll look around and go, I'm not very happy. Mm-hmm. And I've just kind of subtly put my friends down and these aren't really my friends and I've subtly just worked away at life just being a negative aura even though I can come in and do stuff for charity and do this and do that but you're actually there's a negativeness and it but what people don't realize is this slow spiral down and then you'll end up being like I don't need to wash the dishes tonight I'll do it tomorrow I'll do my washing tomorrow. I'll do this tomorrow. And you start doing everything tomorrow. Then you start dreaming about tomorrow. And then tomorrow becomes a brilliant day. And you never get to tomorrow. But fundamentally staying safe by Mm. not trying too hard to go after what your deepest desires might be. Like what you said about a sure failure is better than an unsure success. Yeah. So the idea that 
there was safety, comfort in the certainty that you would fail. So it was like the certainty you were after. But you mentioned happiness as a goal, like as Mm. the most important thing. So for you, do you now know what makes you happy? Are you in touch with what you most want to be doing? Yeah. And I have to keep myself in check for that as well. I think some days I just need to shut my brain off. And some days being happy isn't about going ha 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 every day, which is I think what happiness is. I think happiness is actually sometimes quite content, but an energetic and positive contentment. Like I'm going on the right way. Mm -hmm. This is good. This is, and I'm really grateful for everything that I'm getting. And where can I go now? And what can I do now? That sort of contentment rather than, oh, there's no use trying. I realize now I like to feed my brain a lot and my brain needs simulation and it needs to learn and it needs new challenges. And now I've accepted that those things will make me scared And give me that feeling of, oh, I don't want to do this. And actually, that's a positive thing. It's constantly, actually, it's not just solved. Because actually doing it a lot is what helps. But as soon as I've left it a month and I've got something new, I go back to square one. And I just have to push through the sort of fear and the pain. And your mind will trick you. It will make you feel that this thing you're going for is boring. And it'll make you feel tired. Yeah. And it will make you feel like it's not worth it. And it will get your, it will do things. It will get your coat caught on a hook on a door when you're going out the house. Yeah. So do things like that. And then you'll try and put a message into that. You go, oh, it's trying to stop me doing this. Yeah. I shouldn't do this. <laughs> and you'll start looking at things and it will rain and everything will go wrong. And so you have to just push past all of that. Keep going and going and going. And so I find that's sort of my new philosophy. Yeah, if you can anticipate that there will be barriers to point A to point B or wherever you're headed and not let them knock you off course, but expect it and say, okay, this is just part of the process. This is part of me demonstrating that I'm really serious about this. But that kind of reframing, I think, is really helpful. And you were alluding in a few of your comments about the way you talk to yourself, what messages you send yourself about yourself. Yeah, And I'm wondering if that's something that you've paid a lot of attention to. Yeah, I do now. I realize now that actually maybe I shouldn't always keep joking with how crap I am at everything. And actually, it's not a good idea to yeah. be like that. And so sometimes I have to go like, come on, Jim. Like, yeah. Come on. Go. I'm also really nice to myself in terms of I don't, if I look in the mirror, I, I'm not joking. I think we've all done it. I used to look in the mirror when I was younger and just like, I hate you. I can't stand oh, you. You're so gosh. annoying. But a lot of the time I'm quite nice to myself. I'm like, oh, you look good. Well done. I try to keep everything in perspective. And I now do history and I work in Kensington Palace and people go, you know, they feel sorry for some people and they go, oh, poor them, poor them. I'm like, listen, don't feel sorry for anyone that's that's a millionaire. Don't feel sorry for people that are up walking and, you know, we're all good. Everyone's fine. You know, we're all good. Like, keep it all in perspective. All perspective is exactly the word on the tip of my tongue. And I think that your point earlier about the messages we give ourselves, we have to remember our brains are incredibly susceptible to repetition. Yes. So we are wearing grooves every time we send a message about what we can and can't do, who we are and aren't. We're not that plastic. I mean, we can, in fact, carve the path that we want. But if we insist on repeating the message, a negative message, your brain does clue into that. It's yeah. very hard to bounce back from it. Yeah, it is. And I think that's what I did with the mugging. You can lay the groundwork to go in those directions. I really believe in that, actually. I really, really believe in that. That if Not if you are going to get mugged, I will definitely get mugged. It's not that, but you might end up putting yourself in a position where you don't go out. So when you do go out, you're terrified. Yep. And, and you then, might draw attention to yourself because you look terrified and you look vulnerable and people can smell that. That's yeah. really insightful and helps explain like the phenomenon of seeming to manifest negative things in our lives. Yeah. And helps explain 
a situation that you, if you can go back and undo the root, like, or address the root issue of the fear of like really living in that fear and trying to undo that fear. So you're showing up differently. Yeah, it was. um, And I I believe a lot in manifestation. Actually, trouble is, is people think manifesting means they sit there in a room and they think it lots and lots and lots, and then it will magically appear. It's like, no, it's putting you on that. That makes you go and apply for that job, and it makes it's you the say doing. yes. Yeah, it's yeah. The doing. So actually, once you figure out the trick, uh, oh, okay, this is the only thing that stops me is just really me. And once you figure that out, it does make it easier, but it just it just it clears a lot of the clouds away. I think absolutely. So, Jimmy, now that you're pursuing all of this creative work, I think it would be interesting if you could update us on what you're up to now. By the time this podcast comes out, I will be in a show called Game Night, which my friend wrote, and that's on at Wonderville in the West Ve- West End. I was going to say West End. <laughs> in the West End. Um, it's in the West End, and it's a comedy. So this is where I'm, I'm – you'll love me. I'm really funny because I'm quite happy making everyone laugh. And then I also do a lot of drawing, Jimmy Doodle on Instagram, and then I also work at Kensington Palace. I basically take history, and I'm in the, the rooms, and I will make it interesting for people. And my forte – is grisly deaths and ghost stories. And I will make it fun. I really do, honestly. I'm very positive there as well. I like to chat to people all day long. And ironically, every single morning, I walk past that Chinese shop window and then the ice rink and then I go to the palace. Whoa. And I didn't know until I got there. I went, oh my God, here I am. Wow. And yeah. and you it's faded into the background. It's- yeah. I can look at it now and go, oh, okay. When I first saw it, it took my breath away. And so almost repeating it takes it away. Yeah. Because I'm there every time. So now I walk, I don't even think Exposure now. therapy, yeah. Yeah, so now I'm just like, and I actually now feel sorry for those kids that mugged me. Uh, that's my sympathies with them, not me. I'm very glad that I wasn't mugging people in the streets yeah. and destroying lives. So I feel sorry for them. That's a beautiful, generous note yeah. to offer. <laughs> so Jimmy, thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, you have so much that you've mined from all your experiences that are really major life lessons that you've pulled out of some really difficult circumstances. My next step is going to be to follow up with you about which of your other stories you'll tell on the true story stage in the future. Yes, I know the one I want to. Well, I can't wait to hear it. So thank you so much, Jimmy. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's story and conversation, see the show notes at truestorylondon.com. And if you like what we're doing and want to sponsor us, you can do that on our website too. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by C-Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. And just one more thing. Please subscribe and rate us at your favorite podcast platform. It really does help, especially since we're a new podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.